Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Stephen Pimpier, host of the Public Policy Channel. And today I am pleased to welcome Nathan Holmes, who is the author of Fear City, Crime Film, Crisis, and the Urban Imagination from SUNY Press. Nathan, welcome. Thanks for having me, Stephen. Uh, my pleasure. So if you would, let's start off. Just tell us a little bit about who you are uh, and how it is that you came to this particular project. Uh, sure. Uh, so currently, I'm a visiting professor of cinema studies at SUNY Purchase College in New York. Uh, and previously, I've taught uh, film and media classes at Loyola University in Chicago, University of Iowa, and the University of Chicago, and a few other places. Uh, I have a PhD in cinema and media studies from the University of Chicago. And the research that I do is mostly concerned with the relationship between uh, film history and urban history, and uh, as well as the built environment and its relationship to cinema and media. Uh, and I'm also interested in the history of film theory. My primary interest is the way that film and visual media allow us to kind of see and understand our physical surroundings in new ways. So in graduate school, I became very interested in the connection of film to uh, theories of urban experience and urban modernity, uh, particularly in the writings of people like Walter Benjamin and Jörg Zimmel, uh, Siegfried Krakauer. And I was also interested in the way that moving images in early cinema uh, played a role in both kind of documenting urban life uh, from, you know, the Lumiere brothers and the scenes of uh, uh, Lyon that they offered in their early films to Thomas Edison, and in the way that uh, film aesthetics itself kind of replicated the sensory experience of big city life. So the disorienting sense that one got uh, in being in crowds uh, and the fleeting encounters one would have in the city, this kind of disorienting sense of space and time, the way that that was replicated in certain types of camera effects and things like montage, uh, which was a style of seeing that uh, you know film introduced. Um, so being on the street was kind of an overwhelming experience, and then film itself was kind of uh, doubling this experience uh, for audiences in movie theaters. And I myself was from a very small town and had recently moved to... Uh, to go to graduate school to uh, big cities, first uh, Toronto and then Chicago. And so a lot of these ideas really uh, resonated uh, and appealed to me. Um, so I also became interested in the different types of narrative forms and genres related to the kind of explosion of uh, big cities that happens in the 19th century. So I was really interested in melodrama and the detective novel, uh, and especially um, you know the writings of people like Edgar Allan Poe, who used the detective story as a way to kind of explore the modern urban world of strangers and urban circulation. And my interest here was in the way that um, these narratives and the detective stories, the way that they converted urban experience into kind of an aesthetic that would both kind of resolve the problems of urban life, that would kind of address and engage the stresses associated with living in the city, and also kind of replay them. So in a kind of more uh, therapeutic atmosphere, you know, you would read a detective story at night after you'd been experiencing the big city all day. So I was kind of fascinated by that. Uh, and at the same time that I was reading all this stuff and becoming interested in all this stuff, I was also watching a lot of films from the 1970s, a lot of crime films. And um, I was starting to see connections between all these ideas and um, the crime films, especially location shot crime films that were made uh, in the United States during the 1970s. Um, so there you go. So that's the perfect segue. Uh, we are, by the way, this is the New Books Network Public Policy Channel. We're speaking with Nathan Holmes, author of Fear City, Crime Film Crisis and the Urban Imagination. Um, so I want to, if we can, Nathan, just sort of home in on 
three of the films that you focus on in the book, uh, Clute, Serpico, and The Taking of Pelham 123. Sure. Uh, as a way to, to maybe communicate to our listeners uh, the, the kinds of insights that you think there are to be gleaned in making sense of this very sort of particular moment in urban America, right? Sort of the... Right. the the urban crisis of the 1970s, which I think still, I mean, I think sort of if you think about the current president and the way that he talks about cities, I think right. it still resonates in the American imagination in particular kinds of mm-hmm. ways. Um, so let's, um, if we can, let's start with Clute. Uh, and if you would maybe just offer a brief synopsis for either folks who haven't seen the movie or folks like me who haven't seen it in quite some time. Okay, sure. And then if you would tell us um, why you think it matters, right? Why should we, what, what do we learn from Clute when we try to make sense of this particular period? Sure, sure. Um, so Clute um, is directed by Alan uh, Pakula. Um, and it's about, it's a detective story basically about a man, uh, a suburban man who goes missing in New York. Um, and a, a detective named Clute, played by Donald Sutherland, is sent to New York to search for him. And he is uh, he he contacts um, a woman played by Jane Fonda, Bree Daniels, who was a prostitute, a kind of very high end uh, escort, uh, who has some knowledge or connection to this missing person. And together, um, what they do is uh, search for this missing. Uh, man, and they they kind of move through different spaces uh, in the city. And my interest in Clute primarily was in the director's sense uh, for the architectural spaces of New York in the 1970s, and particularly his um, interest in depicting uh, architectural modernism. Uh, we see a lot of uh, spaces here. We see the uh, not the Seagram building, the famous Mies van der Rohe building, but a, a building very much uh, like it. Uh, which is uh, kind of the location for uh, one of the film's key villains. Um, And we see many shots of um, Brie Daniels moving through these um, kind of corporate spaces. Uh, Brie Daniels is also someone who uh, enjoys nightlife, and she goes to discotheques, which were, um, you know, spaces of leisure and consumption that had recently kind of emerged uh, in the way that we recognize them today as a place for recorded music to be played continuously and to kind of lose yourself to, to kind of stay up all night and, and listen to music. So Brie herself is a very uh, modern woman. And basically the detective, who is very suburban and uh, in some sense naive, um, is kind of accompanying her through these different um, spaces. Um, and what I was really interested in is the sense that um, as Pacula said in an interview, he liked to use architecture to dramatize society. So he's really, um, the way that he depicts New York is really kind of dramatizing a lot of um, anxieties that people have that are related to modern architecture and are also related to a a distinction that is kind of elided in modern architecture between uh, inside and outside. Um, And a lot of uh, the use of plate glass in modern architecture, for example, is very much about trying to erase the visual distinction between inside and outside. And this corresponds with uh, an emergence in the 1970s of a kind of a fear of crime, a fear of the streets, uh, and a fear of actually going outside, a fear of what might happen to you if you went out, you know, at night. Um, and so I saw Pacula as kind of playing with this dynamic of using uh, modern architecture to kind of play with these uh, fears between uh, inside and outside. Um, and so he's interested in all these kind of weird modern spaces, and they all kind of recur in Clute. 
do I guess there there are two questions. One is is what do you make of Bree Daniels' apartment in that context, right? Which is not mm-hmm. one of those modern spaces. Uh, and then the second question is what do you think this is telling us, if anything, about the relationship between the city and the suburbs at this moment? Oh, for sure. Yeah, um, Bree Daniels' apartment in this film, um, for me, typifies what people think of when they think of a loft apartment uh, that were, you know, these were spaces that were becoming very popular during this time. It's not technically a loft, um, but it is uh, open in the ways that most people were, you know, it is kind of, it does have that openness. Um, And Brie herself is, you know, very culturally, um, uh, she's very interested in different kind of subcultures in the city. And these, you know, these are the same kind of things that people who are living in lofts are interested in. So Brie Daniels herself is, you know, very chic and very modern. Her, her costuming, for example, is, is very much uh, aligned with this, but also her, her apartment is presented as a space, uh, a fearful space. One of the first things in the film that happens is we see her kind of returning to her apartment, unloading her groceries, and she's sitting in bed, and then she gets a phone call, and it's an anonymous uh, breather call. So there's a suggestion that this space is being watched by someone else, um, and that that uh, sh- she is endangered simply by being in this space uh, from you know predation from the outside. In terms of the connection between the city and the suburbs. Brie Daniels is a figure who is, uh, her work is um, uh, related to servicing suburban commuters. That's her her main trade uh, is working with uh, commuters, businessmen who come from commuter suburbs into the city, um, presumably from um, uh, families where the, you know, you know, presumably from their suburban homes with their families uh, to cheat on their wives uh, with Brie. And so what I saw the film as doing as kind of elaborating this uh, kind of circuit between the suburbs and the city that was in some ways uh, libidinal in nature, the idea that you could leave the suburbs and find something more exciting uh, in, in the city uh, than uh, a kind of traditional suburban life. And of course, not to, I was going to say, I think, I feel like 1973, we're okay with spoiler alerts. Uh, the, the the person who they wind up looking for, right, the missing husband from the the, the suburbs winds up in the city uh, and is revealed to be a serial killer, right? The, the, yeah, the, the or villain. Or at least a murderer, maybe. Yeah, the murderer, the kind of prime murderer in, in the film is revealed to be the head of this uh, corporation. Yeah. And who, so you know, who kind of sits atop the city in this in this expansive uh, office that gives him a view of, of the Twin Towers, which are in the process of being built at the time. So if we can, let's let's move on to um, you talk about sort of this this, I think, really interesting genre of what you, you call the supercot movies from this period. Um, and I wonder if we could just talk a little bit about um, Serpico, mostly because that may be something that. Uh, folks are familiar with. You also talk at, at some length about French connection in this context. Talk to us a little bit about what's going on in those movies and, and what do we see going on in the city there? Uh, sure. So, you know, during the 1970s, I mean, I guess this discourse kind of resonates um, a little bit with, again, with um, the way that uh, police are being thought of today. But, you know, generally there was uh, an antipathy towards police um, emanating from the counterculture and there was a significant um effort on the part of law enforcement to um, to change its image and to professionalize its image in many ways. One of the key uh, events that happens in the 1970s on which uh, Serpico is based are the uh, NAP Commission hearings, uh, which were kind of um, investigations into police corruption. 
which as depicted in Serpico didn't really, uh, as depicted in Serpico and Sidney Lumet's uh, Prince of the City, in fact, those investigations um, kind of barely scratched the surface of police corruption, but they generated a lot of interest in um, what um, big city police were were up to. Um, there's also a, a kind of a parallel discourse going on, of course, which is the emergence of this idea of this conservative idea of law and order and the idea that um, in the cities uh, crime has run rampant, there's surging crime rates, um, there's a there's a a crisis of civility um, to do with um, the ways that um, all of our uh, suburban children are, are ignoring the police and protesting the police and protesting the war. Um, and so there's a there's an effort to to kind of update the image um, of of the police. And well, one way that this is done is through this discourse of super cops, which is an image of police as kind of highly professionalized operators who are in some sense also entrepreneurial in nature. And this is, you know, exactly, this kind of fits the figure of um, Serpico uh, as played by Al Pacino in, in the film Serpico um, to a T. Um, he, you know, Serpico is not, is an, is a kind of an entrepreneurial policeman who, um, who stages his own uh, undercover operations, usually without the help of uh, other police officers. And, um, and in fact, come become comes under some suspicion from uh, from his other police officers for not being on the take. Um, you know, other, the in the film we are shown that uh, the the police units that he's associated with are often you know taking money, and he since he doesn't take money, he's uh, under suspicion. So he has to kind of operate by himself, and this actually kind of fits perfectly um, with the with with the discourse of uh, of the super cop. This kind of these uh, part uh, crime partners or uh, or solo police officers who fight crime by themselves. Uh, there's another. Um, pretty silly film called the super cops uh which is based on um uh this pair of police officers in new york who were renowned for you know an incredible amount of busts uh usually under um you know the pretenses for making these busts was was you know pretty low <laughs> um and they were also kind of mythologized within this super cop discourse and um they were, you know, nicknamed Batman and Robin, and they kind of have this superhero persona. This is kind of the hyper hyper hyperbolization hyperbolization uh, of the super super, uh, super cop uh, mythos. Serpico, I, I feel, is a little bit more ambivalent, um, simply because um, the um, Serpico himself is uh, uneasy about being a police officer. He has a kind of attachment to counterculture. He's called a hippie cop. You know, he's reading the biography of Isadora Duncan. He has a pet mouse that he walks around with. He's very idiosyncratic and quirky, unlike his, um, you know, conformist fellow police officers. Uh, and so he's very uneasy about his identity as a police officer. So in a, in a way, Serpico kind of plays out um, the ambivalence uh, felt towards uh, police officers during this time. You're listening to the New Books Network. I am Stephen Pimper, host of the Public Policy Channel, and we are speaking with Nathan Holmes about his new book, Fear City, Crime Film Crisis and the Urban Imagination. Uh, so, uh, Nathan, uh, finally, I wonder if it is you might might talk about 
um, a, a a film that, for whatever reason, I am particularly fond of, the taking mm-hmm. of Pelham One Two Three. Uh, and again, what sort of what 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 is the vision of the the, the city that that is showing us? Uh, and there's also sort of I think some things to be said there about police as well. Sure. Um, what do you think we we learn by looking at that movie in the context of what's going on in the period? Sure. Um, yeah, I mean, part of the book is looking at all these different like sites where um, where urban fear kind of um, kind of uh, grows out of or proliferates out of, and and one is kind of a darkened city street, and the other is the subway. There's a kind of considerable fear that uh, subways are breaking down. Um, there's a, a you know a subway fire that happens in the 1970s that attracts considerable amount of attention. Um, so you know the subway is a perfect um, space um, in which to kind of enact this kind of sensational narrative of a hostage taking situation, which is what happens um, in the taking of Pelham One Two Three. And it's a hostage-taking situation that kind of animates the whole city. When we watch the Taking of Pelham 123, we see these um, this group of um, criminals kind of overtake a train and, and, and uh, stop it in the middle of a, a tunnel and demand a ransom. And this kind of spurs the whole city to action and actually stops the entire city. And, this, and the film itself moves between all these different sites. We, we, you know, we move between the subway car itself, um, the different... Um, um, various offices of the subway transit authority and uh, the the subway police, the mayor's office, and they're all kind of communicating with each other about what to do about this situation. And it, for me, you know, what the taking of Pelham One Two Three shows is it really shows how you can use a you know a very um, a crime narrative that is you know in some ways very illogical or perhaps sensational in order to display something about how the city works you know if you live in a city you probably use transit every day and you have no idea how they schedule these trains how they route them and one of the pleasures i think of watching the taking of pelham 123 is that it shows you all this stuff it shows you the kind of behind the scenes um um technologies and uh directors uh, that are involved in orchestrating uh, mass transit uh, in New York, and in a very uh, funny and hilarious way. Often, it's it's as much as it's kind of an action film. It's also very lighthearted, and it's very a very I think affectionate portrayal of New York and New York City, the people of New York. You you talk in the book about ways in which we might think about uh, Pelham One Two Three as perhaps an antecedent to the wire, mm-hmm. precisely for that reason, the way in which it sort of, of, of gives us this, this, it's not quite a meta view, but we're sort of moving around to various institutional offices within the city and seeing those systems function in, in what I think is a really interesting kind of way. Right. Yeah. I mean, I was watching The Wire kind of as I started this project and it was very inspirational for me. And part of the question, you know, part of the, the question that was prompted for me as I watched The Wire was, Okay, you know, The Wire is using this crime narrative to kind of show us all these different sites within the city, all these different, uh, the police, the the drug dealers, um, various city offices, and it's kind of moving up between all these. But isn't this in some ways what all crime narratives do? Don't, you know, don't all crime films and all kind of crime fictions uh aren't they ways to kind of display city life? And, and in some ways, the project is kind of working backwards to this time period to show that, you know, all of these different films are in some ways antecedents of, of what the wire does. Um, have you, there was a, a recent remake with Denzel Washington, I think a couple of years ago. Have you seen that? I did see it. Yes. Um, it? I'm a big fan of, of all types of train and subway movies. Uh, <laughs> so I try to catch um, all of them. 
Um, I don't actually rem- I don't remember it too much. I remember John Travolta was in it. Yeah. Um, I would, I mean, I watched Money Train recently. I would even maybe go for that one over the remake <laughs> of taking a Pelham 1, 2, 3. Yeah. Um, so, so what are you working on now, Nathan? Um, I kind of, well, I'm working on a bunch of little projects that kind of um, all kind of spin out in some ways and in some ways are different from the book. Um, I recently published an article on uh, the depiction of office space in the uh, the film All the President's Men, which is uh, something that I, I discuss a little bit, the, the parking garage in All the President's Men. And and in this article, I kind of discuss um, the way that the film depicts office space and how this resonates with ideas of white-collar labor uh, and the, the idea of the knowledge worker in the 1970s. Um, I'm also working on um, a piece about prison break films, uh, prison films and prison break films uh, made in the post-war era. Um, there's a number of uh, prison break films that were made in a kind of a semi-documentary manner. They mixed uh, documentary with narrative. Um, so I'm, I'm going to talk a little bit about those. And I'm also working uh, on a larger project that has to do with um, public and semi-public architecture in American film that moves, uh, again, between a number of different uh, institutional uh, sites. And uh, I'm particularly interested in spaces of work uh, and transportation and leisure. So moving between places like train stations and offices uh, and nightclubs uh, and doing a kind of longer history of those spaces within American film. You have been listening to Nathan Holmes talking about uh, his new book, Fear City, Crime, Film, Crisis, and the Urban Imagination from uh, State University of New York, SUNY Press. Uh, I'm Stephen Pember, host of the New Books Network Policy Channel. Nathan, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me, Stephen. It was great.